Would you join me in, in prayer uh, once again as we look to the Lord, as we need his help in opening his word? So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your truth. We've sung truth. Uh, we've, we've prayed some truth as we would now uh, hear your word read and proclaimed. We, we ask for your help. It's the spirit who gives life. Uh, the flesh is no help at all. And the words that you have spoken, they are spirit and life. And so we pray that you would grant our souls life and freedom and joy in trusting you and in submitting to you as you've made yourself known in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a legend uh, told by the late Romanian pastor, Richard Vermbrand, you may know his name, he's the founder of the ministry uh, Voice of the Martyrs, uh, he himself suffered uh, greatly, and he tells uh, a legend that illustrates the necessity of trusting in God's good unseen purposes when all we can see is evil and frustration and futility. Uh, he puts it this way, a legend says, now this is not a true account of an event in Moses' life, it's a legend, it's a tale, it's meant to teach a lesson. A legend says that Moses once sat near a well in meditation. A wayfarer stopped to drink from the well, and when he did so, his purse fell from his girdle into the sand. The man departed. Shortly afterwards, another man passed near the well, saw the purse, and picked it up. Later, a third man stopped to quench his thirst and went to sleep in the shadow of the well. Meanwhile, the first man had discovered that his purse was missing, and assuming that he must have lost it at the well, he returned, awoke the sleeper, who of course knew nothing, and demanded his money back. An argument followed, and irate, the first man killed the latter. Whereupon, Moses said to God, you see, therefore, men do not believe you. There's too much evil and injustice in the world. Why should the first man have lost his purse and then become a murderer? Why should the second have gotten a full purse of gold without having worked for it? The third was completely innocent. Why was he slain? God answered, for once and only once I will give you an explanation. I cannot do it at every step. The first man was a thief's son. The purse contained money stolen by his father from the father of the second man, who, finding the purse, only found what was due him. The third was a murderer whose crime had never been revealed and who received from the first the punishment he deserved. In the future, believe that there is sense and righteousness in what transpires even when you do not understand. Now, that's not just abstract philosophy, okay? This, th this man's autobiography, it was called Tortured for Christ. The book in which that little anecdote is shared is, is a book called 100 Prison Meditations. And I think we can sympathize, though, with the conundrum being expressed in that little anecdote. Much of our lives are lived in that, in that little moment between Moses' question, well, God, what, what are you doing? Why, why this injustice? And that, that answer from God which came. In light of eternity, that moment in between the question and God's answer is really just a flash of lightning. And, and we long for that day when our faith is turned to sight and when we are no longer ever confounded again to all eternity. We long for that day when we see how, in fact, all things have worked together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But right now, we're, we're in the middle. We've not gotten those answers. And so we uh, often live the life of faith with unanswered questions. And at times, it is painfully hard to believe that God is actually doing a thousand things for you and for his glory in the midst of your disappointed plans. 
Now, as I said, not every detail of that uh, legend should be taken literally, right? It, it would be an overstatement. It would be wrong to say, uh, to put in the mouth of God, for once and only once, I'll give you an explanation. In reality, God, though we do have unanswered questions, God has given us many. He has given us numerous illustrations throughout the scriptures to teach his people this truth, specifically that he can be trusted even when we don't understand or see what he's doing. And the book of Esther is an extended illustration of that truth. And we have begun to study the book of Esther last Sunday, and we continue that study this morning, so I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther uh, chapter 2. If you want to use one of the Bibles that we have provided for you under those seats, that's on page 411. At least our text this morning starts on page 411. The book of Esther, again, we, just to remind you of what we considered last Sunday, the book of Esther is an account of God's sovereign work in preserving the Jewish people from the threat of annihilation. The Lord reigns over his people, and he preserves them even when they live in the midst of pagan oppressors, as is the case in the book of Esther, and even when his activity is not evident and visible to the human eye. Right? We, we noted last week that God... This is the only book in the Bible, Esther is the only book in the Bible like this, God is not actually even mentioned in the book of Esther. And we saw that that is an omission that is deliberate. It reminds us that God is present even when he seems to be most absent. And last week as we considered the first couple of chapters, we, we learned that after an act of insubordination by the queen of Persia, uh, Esther came to be part of the king's harem, and she won his favor, and she became the queen of Persia. And we, we detected, though again, his name is not mentioned, though there was a lot of sin and injustice and moral compromise involved in the whole thing, we could perceive the hand of God in it all, so that with a serious threat to the Jewish people's well-being on the horizon, a Jewish woman actually came to be the queen of the Persian Empire. And as we continue to study this morning, as we pick up where we left off in chapter 2, verse 19, we see the first hint that it's not an accident. There's divine purpose in Esther being queen at this time and in this place. That's going to become even more clear as we continue to study the book, but, but we get a hint of it here at the end of chapter 2. So uh, listen as I read. I should turn to the proper page, shouldn't I? All right, there we go. Uh, Esther 2, verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, we're not sure exactly what that second gathering is referring to, but it says Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. He wasn't loitering there. I'm not going to give you interpretation at every step, but just so you have some of the historical context. That when it says he was sitting at the king's gate, he wasn't just hanging out. That, that is a way of saying that he held some kind of office within the palace administration. The king's affairs and business would be conducted at the king's gate. So Mordecai, perhaps because of his association with Esther, had some kind of a position in the administration. That's what it means when it says he was sitting at the king's gate. Esther, verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahashverosh. Okay, right, I've been using his Hebrew name. Kids, you remember what that me name means from last week? Ahashverosh means what? King headache. king headache. That's right. That's what Ahashverosh is meant to signify. This king has a lot of headaches in this book. So a couple of the king's eunuchs became angry. They sought to lay hands on King Ahashverosh. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, 
When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So we see, here's a reason. Queen Esther has been put in place. And because she is in relationship with Mordecai, Mordecai hears this plot. He's able to get word to Esther, who gets word to the king. It's discovered. And so, in a sense, Esther has been put in place there to preserve the king's life in this instance. And yet, his actions, we're told, are quickly forgotten by the king. That's not what you would expect. Persian kings uh, were known to be especially careful about rewarding such acts. We don't know why the king failed to give any reward to Mordecai at this time, but it's an oversight that will prove to be very fortuitous for God's people. It's like in this event here at the end of chapter 2, a little a fuse is being lit, and it's just going to slowly burn down until we get to chapter 6 when it becomes explosively important in God's plan to deliver his People, But right now, it's just forgotten. And that may be, I mean, this is not really one of my main points, but that may be of help to you this morning. Uh, when, when we engage in quiet acts of faithfulness that go unrecognized, that can be something that is confounding. That can be something that is disheartening. As I was thinking about this and as I was just looking over our member directory, I was just thinking of, uh, some of you parents who have raised children and those children have grown up and they have rejected the faith that you instructed them in. And those quiet acts of faithfulness, of training your children in the way of the Lord, they seem to be going unrecognized and unrewarded. Well, let this little account encourage you. God sees, God knows your faithfulness and he will not fail to bring his reward in due time. God's word, Jesus said, not even a cup of cold water that we give to one in Jesus' name will fail to lose its reward. But right now, it's, it's just another puzzling omission. It's just another injustice, and an injustice that becomes even more bitter because of what happens next. In the very next sentence, in chapter 3, verse 1, we are introduced to the main enemy of this story, a man by the name of Haman, that's right. Now, kids, kids, it is, this is, I wonder if you've ever longed for a day when you might be encouraged to scream and boo and hiss right in the middle of a church service. If you've ever desired such a day, that day has come for you. Because we're going to read the book of Esther. I told you last Sunday, the book of Esther is a very precious book to the Jewish people. And when the Jewish people would read the book of Esther, and they do it every year at the Jewish holiday Purim, in the synagogue they read this book, and when it's read in the, in the synagogue, every time Haman's name is mentioned, there's booing and there's hissing. And they actually have little noisemakers. I kind of looked in. Matt's a little disappointed with me that I didn't pull the trigger and buy them from Amazon. They have these little noisemakers, and you would shake these noisemakers. You'd make a lot of noise and scream and boo when Haman's name is mentioned. And I want to encourage you to do that. Now, not every time in the sermon, okay, because that could get a little bit awkward. But when I'm reading the text, kids, and, and when I say kids, I have no particular age in mind, okay? So if you want to you go for that, I, I, you know, that's cool. Um, but when you hear the name of Haman, it is entirely appropriate for you to boo and hiss and scream and do whatever you feel compelled to do, okay? You're going to hear it a few times in chapter 3. Let's, let's look at what... We, we find in Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerosh promoted Haman. All right, that's not bad, but I think you can do a little better as we go. It's going to come up a number of times. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For, I like that, I like that. Now, I'm going to read because I'm not trying to keep you here till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But you keep doing that. I'm going to keep reading. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, 
in order, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. This is fun, isn't it? I hope you're actually paying attention to the story, though. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not uh, to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Shusha, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shusha was thrown into confusion. Now I do hope that all, and I enjoyed it, again, I, I, I hope you enjoyed that. But I hope that the screaming and shouting and hissing did not uh, distract you from the very egregious, hateful injustice that we're reading about in the chapter. The main lesson that I want to draw out for you from this chapter, and we do have another chapter still to, to look at. Haman's name is not going to come, come up as much in that chapter. I'm sorry, kids, small and big. But the primary lesson from this chapter that I want to draw out for you is that God's people will be the object of senseless attacks from hateful enemies. God's people will be the object of senseless attacks from hateful enemies. That's what Haman is referred to here as, the enemy of the Jews. We may have some unanswered questions, just as we did last week about all the details. Why was uh, Haman promoted as he was. Why didn't Mordecai bow down to him? It doesn't seem like this was a religious thing. It was very customary to just bow the way, you know, you would just bow down before an official. It wasn't necessarily an idolatrous type of a thing. So we're not sure exactly why Mordecai refused to bow. Even later in the book, we see Mordecai not refusing when other people bow down before him. So we have some unanswered questions, but we can see here that God's people are in Esther chapter 3, the object of a senseless attack from a very hateful enemy. And this is not just a conflict between Mordecai and Haman, but this is a conflict that touches, uh, really, uh, it goes back all the way to the beginning in the Garden of Eden and the first sin of man, and it continues on into even our own day and will be till the end of the age when Jesus comes and makes all things new. Haman here is called an Agagite. 
Now, you might not remember these details, and I can only touch on them briefly, but in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God commanded Israel's first king, Saul, to destroy Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And it may seem cruel that he was just told to wipe out a whole people group, but actually, uh, that was a divine judgment upon the people of Amalek because of what they had done to the people of Israel when Israel had been delivered from Egypt and then they were traveling through the wilderness, the people of Amalek sought to destroy the people of God. And so the Lord said that there would be war from that time forward. You can read about that in Exodus 17. God said there would be war between the people of Amalek and, the, and his own people from generation to generation. And so here is Haman, and we're told twice in the chapter he is an Agagite. Uh, we don't know if that means, it may mean that he was actually a physical descendant of that king Agag. It may just be used, the term Agagite may be, and we have some evidence historically that it was referred to just speak of enemies of the Jews more broadly because of that deep animosity recorded in Exodus 17. But it, for whatever reason, he's called an Agagite, and so this opposition that Haman had towards the Jews was a snapshot of the world's opposition to the people of God. An opposition, as I said, that goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, if you remember God's word of judgment to the serpent, he said to the serpent, because you have done this, this is the Lord speaking to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. There would be conflict, the Lord said, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And we see that conflict playing out throughout the biblical storyline. We see it in the very next chapter of Genesis when Cain seeks to kill Abel. We see it in, in uh, Exodus with Pharaoh oppressing cruelly the people of God. We see it in in wicked Goliath and the Philistines who were seeking to destroy the people of God. Even we see it in King Saul, who himself tried to kill the man after God's own heart, the true king, King David. And so we see this conflict going on and on where the offspring of the serpent hates and is seeking to destroy the people of God. It happened in the early days of the church in the Roman Empire. They were seeking to destroy the people of God. Right? Or what, is, what is Haman's basic appeal here to the king? He basically says there in chapter 3, King, these people, these Jews, he doesn't say that they're Jews, does he? Which is significant. He just mentions a people. Their laws aren't like our laws. They don't follow the rules around here. They're a threat to you, king. They're subversive. And if you don't do something about them, they could overthrow the kingdom maybe. That's the same charge that was leveled against the early Christians in the time of the book of Acts. Right? When, when, when Paul and Silas went along to Philippi, it says they, that they were brought before the magistrates. When Paul and Silas were arrested, they were brought before the magistrates, and it, and it was said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The next chapter in Acts chapter 17, we're told of, of, the, of the Christians, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. You see, there has been this enmity between God's enemies and God's people. From the very beginning, through this time in the Persian Empire, through the early days of the church, and even to our own day. If this little biblical theology lesson is just kind of like, whoa, that's a lot you just said, just lock in here. Because the point is, we live in a world of conflict. A war is raging on in which belonging to the people of God makes one a target. Jesus himself said that, did he not? If the world hates you, he said. Do you remember? We've been studying the Gospel of John. It's been taking us about 18 years to finish the Gospel of John. But we're going to, Lord willing, we're going to finish it soon. But in John chapter 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, Jesus said. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The way it was in the Persian Empire and the way it was in the first century is the way it is today. Lawlessness is increasing and even governments and authorities rage against the Lord and against his laws. Is that not what we find even today increasingly in our own land where laws are made and threats are made forbidding God's people from teaching his good word about uh, his design for gender, uh, bearing God's image as males and females. Uh, we are threatened for teaching God's word as it pertains to marriage being exclusively between a man and a woman. Uh, for we, are, we are forbidden from teaching God's word about life being when God knits someone together in their mother's womb and therefore deserving of protection and preservation. We are threatened about speaking up for Christ in our workplaces, perhaps, or our schools, or even for some of us in our own homes by unbelieving family members. And we need to be reminded that if you are faithful to the call and the commands of Jesus, you will experience some measure of this hatred and opposition. I don't know how much you need not compare yourself to the early Christians in the book of Acts. You need not compare yourself to believers in other parts of the world today who are imprisoned and beaten and even killed because of their faith in Christ. But you must understand that if we are faithful to the call and the commands of Jesus, we will be opposed. When we proclaim to sinners... You are a rebel against God. You have offended him by your self-rule and you must turn from your sin and you must rely wholly upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you don't, you will endure the suffering eternally of punishment uh, in hell when we tell people that we are confronting a core conviction that those unbelievers hold, namely that kingdom of self that is so pervasive in their hearts. And so if we are going to be faithful, we can expect some rage from God's enemies. And with those threats, there will be temptations for us to compromise. Beloved, guard yourselves against those temptations. You see, Mordecai, he was able to keep silent for a time. But eventually he had to take a stand and he had to say whose side he was on. And we're all going to need to do that. Various ways, various times, but you're going to need to choose sides and you're going to need to make your true allegiance known. And I want you to understand, beloved, that it is far better. God's word says this. This is why I can say it to you with authority. It is far better to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's the choice. The choice between enduring mistreatment with the people of God or the fleeting pleasures of sin, that's the choice that lay before Queen Esther as we turn to chapter 4. You haven't forgotten about Queen Esther, have you? There in the, in the secluded splendor of the king's palace, she's been ignorant of all that's been transpiring in Shusha. A, a holocaust has been decreed. Can you imagine this? I, I want you to think about this. Imagine there was a decree made by the president of the United States today that on December 30th of this year, 11 months from today, all the Christians in America were to be rounded up by their neighbors and by their officials and their homes and properties could be plundered and they should be put to death. That's what's going on here in the Persian Empire. There's chaos, there's confusion in the city and we're told there at the end of chapter 3 that Haman and King Ahasuerus, they're just sitting down enjoying a couple of drinks having decreed genocide. And we might wonder, God, where are you? Why are you not doing anything? Why are you not acting? And yet what we see as the story continues is that he is acting. He is present even 
in his apparent absence, he's already begun to put in place the plan of deliverance. And that leads us to our second observation. I'll give it to you before I even read chapter 4. God's people, they will be the object of senseless attacks from hateful enemies. But, don't you love that there is a but there? But God will bring deliverance from every attack at just the right time. God will bring deliverance from every attack at just the right time. Esther chapter 4 um, You can still scream for Haman. He's not going to be here as much, but you can still be on the lookout for it. When Mordecai learned all that had had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whether the king's command... And uh, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about it too, but you should say, you should boo. Uh, The exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Shusha for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants of, and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. Now, we'll, we'll stop there for just a moment. So there's, there's weeping and lamenting the people of, of the Jews. They're in great distress. Esther hears about it. She doesn't understand what's going on. And there's this conversation between Esther's eunuch and, and Mordecai explaining what's happening. And he wants her to act. He has previously told her to be silent about her ethnicity. But now he says to Esther, go and plead with your people before the king. And Esther is in a very precarious position. That's what, re- that's what she basically responds, right? This king is crazy. We, we've already seen how fickle he is to those who arouse his displeasure. We're actually told this little anecdote from history that one time uh, King Ahasuerus, he built a bridge and then a flood came along and washed the, the bridge away and he ordered his army to go out and flog the river for disobeying him. Okay? He was crazy. That's the bottom line. He was a crazy man. He was very fickle, and she's not been summoned. At this point, she's been the queen of Persia uh, for about five years, but she's not been summoned to him for now 30 days. And it's probably not likely that the king's been sleeping alone those 30 days. So this is, this is a defining moment for Esther. And in this defining moment, Mordecai speaks to her what, what is probably the the closest we have in this book to a confession of faith, a sighting of the unseen God. He's not mentioned by name, but his fingerprints are really on Mordecai's response here. Look at verse uh, 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
You see, it's a, it's a three-pronged argument that he has there. Basically, he says, first, Esther, even in the king's palace, you're not safe. You're, you're, you are a Jew, and it's going to come. You're going to be found out. It's hard to know. It may be a, a little bit of a warning that Mordecai is giving to her here. Hey, if, if you don't make yourself known, God's, God's judgment may fall upon you. He's going to deliver the people of Israel, but you will perish if you don't identify yourself with your God and with your people at this time. Uh, either way, what, what he seems to be saying is doing the wrong thing is never safer than doing the right thing, even if doing the right thing kills you. You're not safe in the king's palace, Esther. Then he says, Esther, whether it's from you or from somewhere else, God's people, we're going to be delivered. Now, where, where would Mordecai get that confidence from if not from the promises that God had made to his people throughout the generations? God had promised his servant Abraham that Abraham would be the father of a great nation who would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. He had promised David that one of David's uh, descendants would be on his throne ruling in righteousness and that it would be so forever. And so God's name here is absent, but it seems as though Mordecai has not forgotten God's covenant commitments. He knows that God does not break a promise. And so he says, Esther, it may be through you, maybe it won't be through you, but he's going to preserve his people. And then the last part of the argument is, could it be Esther? That providence has arranged your place? This looming day of destruction happened by chance, right? By the casting of lots. But maybe it's not by chance that Esther, you're in the position that you are. Maybe you weren't gathered into the palace with those other virgins by chance. Maybe your beauty did not appeal to the king specifically by chance. Maybe, just maybe the fact that you, a Jew, Esther, are the queen at this particular point in time in the midst of this Agagite hatred and this wicked empire-wide decree, maybe that was no accident at all. Maybe there's a divine director who is on the move working all things for the good of his people. That seems to be what he's, I mean, I know I'm inserting some some interpretation there, but it seems as though that's what he's saying, right? He's saying God rules. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over kings and queens and enemies and lots and assassination plots and promotions and unrecognized good deeds and civilizations and empires. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so he says, Esther, it may be that you're here right now for such a time as this by God's design, by God's decree. And this appeal from Mordecai brings about a great transformation in Esther. She seems to be transformed here in the crucible of crisis. Just as we sang a few minutes ago, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. And it seems as though right here in the furnace of affliction, Esther grows a resolve and a courage that we've not really yet seen in her character to this point in the story. Right, before this moment, she's very passive. She's going with the flow, and, and her, her commitments seem to be obscure at best. Right? I said last week she's a compromised queen, but now through Mordecai's exhortation, through his reminding her of that covenant God and his covenant promises to keep his people, she is emboldened with a resolute conviction. Look there at her response in verse uh, 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Shusha and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And in a great reversal, Mordecai actually obeys all that she commanded. Throughout this whole passage, Mordecai has been calling the shots. Esther, do this. Esther, don't do this. Now, she's saying, this is what you should go do, Mordecai. And it says there in verse 17, Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And what we will see in due time, due time hopefully being next Sunday, or you could just keep reading the story this afternoon, Esther is, in fact, the one through whom the unseen God 
intends to bring about deliverance for his people from this plotted genocide. And he does so at just the right time. Esther has, in fact, been placed in that palace for such a time as this. And it's her courageous confidence in this moment that moves along God's invisible plan. So is that our takeaway this morning, then? Uh, Risk is right, as I've heard John Piper say. Better to lose your life than to waste it. Go forth from here, Christian brothers and sisters, and have courage like Esther. Is that God's word for us today? I wonder what you think. I would say kind of it is. It is a truth attested to here, and it is a truth attested elsewhere in Scripture, that obedience to God is often costly. And that when we find ourselves in the crucible of crisis, we must obey God and we must leave the consequences to him. That in the words of of one pastor, Garrett Kell, I've heard him say it this way, we don't need to live, but we do need to be faithful. Obedience to the Lord is more precious than life. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Isn't that what we heard read earlier in the service from the lips of our Lord Jesus? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Coming to Jesus, coming after him and choosing to be his disciple, that reshapes our whole value system completely. Before we came to him, our main goal in life was to just stay alive as long as we could, to gather as much stuff as we could, to enjoy as much comfort at ease as we could. But that's not the aim of the people of God once they come to meet Jesus and they come to follow Jesus. Our main goal in life now is to know Christ and to become like Christ and to magnify Christ, whether by life or by death, for to us it is as it was for Paul, to live is Christ and to die is game. We can be inspired by the example of Esther here, can we not? Even as we are inspired by the example of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. I love the Apostle Paul. This man, they they came to him in Acts Acts chapter 21. He was getting ready to go to Jerusalem. They said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to bind you. They're going to imprison you. He says, I know. I know they're going to, I know what they're going to do. And I'm ready, he says, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And how could he say that? Because he knew what his life was about. Because he said in the previous chapter of the book of Acts, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. For Paul, it was, just as it was for Esther there, if I perish, I perish. It it was for Paul to obey the Lord and to fulfill the ministry that the Lord had given. That was more precious to, to Paul than life was. Oh, God, may it be so for all of us who serve Christ today. If I'm ostracized in the name of Christ, then let, I, let myself be ostracized. If I'm fired, let me be fired. If I suffer loss, may I suffer loss. If, I, if it costs me greatly, may it cost me greatly. If only I may be faithful to Jesus. May that be our holy ambition as we see arising in the heart of Esther. So, yeah. Go ahead and exercise courage like Esther. But for all the looking that you do at Esther, make sure you look at Esther's God first. Because courage is not going to arise in your heart simply from looking at Esther, but from looking at Esther's God. That's what Esther was confronted with. The promises and the plans and the purposes of God that no power of hell and no scheme of man could possibly destroy. God would preserve his people. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, don't forget me. You understand what I'm saying? Don't forget him. Don't forget who it is that's calling you to follow him. When Paul says, I don't count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, he was longing and yearning to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
Oh, Esther had a defining moment here in chapter 4, but her defining moment is just a shadow of the greatest defining moment in the history of the world. One that took place not at a Persian gate, but in a Palestinian garden. You see, Jesus Christ was even greater, if I could put it that way, in his defining moment than Esther was in hers. Esther became troubled in the midst of her defining moment, but Jesus became sorrowful even to death. Esther asked her fellow Jews to join with her day and night in fasting, and they did. Jesus asked his followers to join him for just an hour during the night, and they fell asleep on him. Esther took up sackcloth and ashes, entering into death symbolically. But Jesus took up the beams of the cross and took the nails upon his hands, entering into death literally. Esther responded to her defining moment with a knowledge that she might perish. But Jesus responded with a knowledge that he most certainly would perish. And yet despite his great sorrow, despite the excruciating pain before him, despite the fickle abandonment of his followers, despite the knowledge of his certain death, Jesus did not retreat into self-protective avoidance. Praise God he did not. He did not cower in weakness, nor did he opt for the path of least resistance. No, when Jesus faced his defining moment, having been called by God, having been sent by God in the fullness of time for such a time as this, at just the right time, he responded with resolute conviction and courage and said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And he did that for us. He said, now is my soul, this was earlier, even before the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 12, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He came at such a time for such a thing as to give his life as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. That you might be forgiven, that you might be washed, that you might be brought into his family. Made an heir of God, a fellow heir of Christ. Provided that you suffer with him in order that you may be glorified with him. With courage, Jesus walked into the crucible of the cross knowing that he would certainly perish, that there would be no golden scepter extended for his escape, and he did so knowing that in his perishing, he would accomplish the deliverance of his people, a salvation much greater than the deliverance from this evil edict of Haman, a salvation from the judgment that was due to us of sin and death and hell, and he did it all for the joy that was set before him. For joy, Jesus suffered the agony and the shame and the spiritual ruin of God's righteous wrath. For the joy of being raised from the dead and returning to the glory of the Father and saving an innumerable people from destruction, making the whole universe new and being surrounded by countless worshipers forever. He did that for the joy that was set before him. He had come for such a time as that and for such a purpose as that. If you're here this morning and you've not put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you may not understand 80% of what I've just said in the last 45 minutes. But if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, understand this morning that a righteous and good king has issued a just decree. In Esther 3, we see an evil decree made by an evil king. But there is a righteous and good king who rules over all, and he has issued a just decree that the wages of sin is death. And we have all sinned against God in thought, in word, in action, in attitude, and we therefore deserve his judgment. But this righteous king, Jesus, came. And he submitted himself perfectly to the Father and he loved his people enough that he would come and give his life on the cross to rescue hell-deserving sinners from his wrath. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus and you heard, you don't really understand anything I said, oh, please consider that this morning, that you are God's enemy because of your sin. And yet he is merciful and kind and he will forgive all who come to him in humble, repentant faith. If you want to know more about what that means, I would be delighted to talk to you. I'll talk to you in this tone of voice, not in the yelling tone of voice. Or talk to somebody around you that you would come to put your faith in this good and faithful king. 
uh, brothers and sisters, looking to such a faithful, marvelous redeemer, such a blood-bought deliverance, we find in our hearts, do we not, a new passion to live upon and to live for him who has so generously given his life for us in full confidence that if he's already conquered death for us, then he will surely deliver us from every affliction that we endure for his name. The Lord will rescue me, the apostle Paul said. Where did he have that conviction to go and lay down his life and be imprisoned and die and suffer loss and suffer danger? The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Those are the kinds of promises that we have, beloved, which inflame bold and risk-taking and sacrificial service to our great and glorious king, even in the midst of senseless attacks from hated enemies. This story is in God's word as a little pointer to the gospel of the Lord Jesus to provoke in his people boldness and courage. Because no matter what, even when the evil day comes and when your world is as confounding and frustrating as it was for Moses in that legend sitting beside that well, we have the truth of God's word that says he is not hidden, he is faithful. He has been before and he will be again. Victory, beloved, is certain. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No matter how dark and dim the circumstances may be, every one of his beloved will be resurrected and glorified and we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Look to him and trust in him no matter what may come. Love you, brothers and sisters. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of a courageous woman. Uh, there are many such women, even in our congregation, and we thank you for them. Those who have uh, loved you so much that they are willing to love others and lay down their lives for the good of others, raising children, uh, caring for aging parents, working outside the home and inside the home, caring for the orphans, enduring illness, enduring the loss of loved ones, living with unbelieving husbands. We thank you for so many women uh, like Esther, even in this congregation, who are ready to lay down their life to bring good to others, who do not fear those things that may be legitimately frightening. And Father, we pray that you would work in all of us, male and female, that you would work all, in all of us a courage to stand for you, to not compromise when it is hard to stand firm in our confidence, and that you would help us to do so, Father, not mainly by looking to Esther, but looking to our Savior, our Redeemer, our Deliverer, who Esther just points to. Would you help us to treasure Jesus, to treasure his willingness to come and lay down his life for us? And would you arise in ours? May your love constrain us, Father, that we would gladly give of our lives to serve and follow you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.